Amen. Well, it is a good time of year. I love it. I love the fact that we have a brand new thing. My, my, really, my New Year's resolution is that I want to know God better every day. Every day, I want to know my God better. And I, I would invite you to join me on that one. And we're continuing on this morning with our study that started, I think, six weeks ago. About six weeks, something like that. And Pastor Aaron started. And he taught us on the, uh, what, and we're talking about, what do we believe? As a church, what do we believe? And we're going to be looking at a number of things that we believe. They're found in our, in our Constitution. They're found in our Statement of Faith. These are the things we believe. Last time that we, the first message we had on this that Pastor Aaron taught was on uh, the Bible. Why do we believe the Bible is the Word of God? Why do we believe that it is inerrant? Why do we believe that it is authoritative? Why do we believe that it is uh, practical and useful and relevant uh, to our lives? This is the basis on which we base all of our, all of our beliefs. So I would just say to you, in the age in which we're living, that message is crucial. Because people are challenging on who has the authority and what basis is the authority. And I make without apology that the basis of what I believe is the God who gave us this word that is trustworthy, is infallible, is his God-breathed word. What I believe about life, what I believe about God, is found in the word of God. It is the basis of my authority. You can come and talk to me about anything you want as what you believe, but I will challenge you in response, show me in the Word of God. And if you could show me in the Word of God, I used to say this, if you could tell me that in order for me to be saved, and it says in the Bible that I have to stand on my head and gargle peanut butter and stack greasy BBs, I'll believe it if it's in here. It's not, by the way, so don't get going looking. <laughs> So this is, this is crucial, and I want to just emphasize that again. Every, everybody is speaking as if they have absolute authority, and, and I'm saying that we need to be saying, what is it that we measure our beliefs in regards to? And it has to be in the Word of God. You'll find me using that this morning as we look at the subject, and that is that we believe as a church, we believe in um, an infinite triune, eternal, sovereign God, one God. We believe in one God. And why do I believe that? We'll talk about that this morning. So, so you can keep track with what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to be asking basically seven questions of you. And these seven questions will lead us then in an understanding of who our God is. The first question then is this. Can I know that there is a God? I'm not talking about as a believer. I'm talking about just as a general observer out there in the world. Can I know that there is a God? It's stated that 95% of the world believes that there is a God. Now, I'm not saying that they believe in the true God. In fact, we can't agree with that because there are many gods that they advocate out there. And some people actually believe in thousands upon thousands of gods in their belief structure. So can I know that there is a God? 
Well, the fact is we can. And we can know it from three primary sources. And it's not the Bible, although the Bible speaks of these. When I look out at the heavens, I can conclude, because they shout out their message to me every day, that there is a God. Psalm, uh, Psalm 19, verse 1 to 3. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hand. Day after day, they pour out their speech. They're giving a speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Isn't that interesting? So uh, universally, across the entire planet Earth, when I look up at the skies, I, it's evidence that there is a God out there. Now, I understand that there are atheists who do not want to believe in God, and I believe that there are those who are agnostics or uncertain about God. But I'm saying that if you're a reasonable thinking person, you have to think, wow, this is amazing. The second reason that I think we can know that there is a God is Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, of uh, the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So there again, not only am I looking up at the heavens, which He did create, but also at creation itself, the intricacies of that, the, the amazing beauty of His creation, it should dr- draw my mind to conclude There is a God. There is a God. Now, it doesn't mean that I know him or have experienced him, but I will conclude there has to be a God. The third area that I see is also found in Romans. Indeed, when Gentiles, that's in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts are not accusing nor even defending them. So what is that saying here? It means that there is within mankind, in his conscience, an awareness that there is a God. It's interesting that in that conscience, we are, there is the supreme notion that is out there is this. There is a God, and somehow He is alienated from me, and I need to do something to get back with Him. That's building a relationship. But universally, uh, Don Richardson has written a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. This is an old book, a missionary book, and in that Eternity in Their Hearts, He talks about uh, everywhere they've gone, no matter how remote the tribe may be, no matter how isolated they may be, no matter where they've gone, they have found that that group of people have a God system. And in that God system, they, uh, they have the awareness that God is mad at them, and they have to appease this God in some way. Now, they're not far from the truth, really, when you think about that. We have alienated ourselves from God. And as such, uh, there needs to be uh, reconciliation that's done. The difficulty, as we'll look at, is man's inadequate to do that. So I believe that the heavens are a declaration that there is a God, creation itself, and the conscience of man. But I believe there is another that makes a little reference to what I was talking about with uh, Don Richardson, and that is 
the incurable nature of man to build gods. It, it, it's, it's amazing to me. We're, we're, and this is my, real, my second question then, is not only is there a God, but why are there so many false gods? And there are. There are so many false gods. Why are there so many false gods? And I think we can see that because of the rebellion against God in heaven by Satan himself. And the reason he rebelled against God, according to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, is that he said, I desire to be God. I want to be like the Most High God. And so there was a rebellion, and he created this whole false kingdom that is out there that, is, uh, that he wants to have people follow him. It's a usurped authority, but he still's out there doing it. And we see that even with Adam and Eve in the, in the book of Genesis there, where Satan approaches him, and he says, can you, you know, what restrictions basically do you have in regards to your life? And, well, we can eat of everything, but of this tree we can't. And he said, well, the reason God is saying you can't eat of that because he knows that the day you eat of that, and it says very clearly there, you'll be like God. Adam and Eve did eat of the tree, did find themselves alienated from God. But what they did is very interesting because I think it speaks of the nature of man to create a God to sustain himself. What did they do? They hid from God and they tried to protect themselves. They took means to, so, to make themselves, knowing that they didn't measure up, but they were going to do something themselves that would make them acceptable. Un, it doesn't work. It, it simply won't work, but mankind has continued to do that. We see that in John eight forty four. You are of the father of the devil. The lust of your father you will do. The lust of your father you will do. So what was the primary lust of God, of Satan? He was, I will be like the Most High God. And so there is within each one of us this desire to be like God and to make gods for ourselves. Now, I'm not saying that it's wise because even as I read in, um, in Isaiah chapter 45, he says, to whom would you liken me? And make me equal and compare me. This is God speaking to this. That he would be, that we would be alike. So, he's, so Jesus, God is asking the question, how can you make a God like me? Those who uh, lavish gold from their purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a God. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it up on their shoulders and carry it. They, they set it in the place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver them from their distress. Now here he's talking about the absolute foolishness and the inadequacy of shaping and forming a God for yourself. And yet we do that. Now we may not be as unsophisticated as that to fashion a god but we have other gods that we may make along that line that we trust in more than we trust in god it becomes the basis of our decision our authority in that process 
It's interesting to note that the reason that I believe there is a God is because this propensity of man to create God, but also hear it from God. The first commandment that he gives them in the Ten Commandments is what? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And so that means, why would he give that as his first commandment? Because it is the nature of man. It is the nature of man to make gods. We do that all the time. And it's a means by which, now by the way, all the gods that we make are gods that we can control. In fact, I'm not sure that I would really trust a God that I have to carry around, that I have to sit up. When I was in um, India, we were going to meet with uh, Dr. Sani with a group of people, and it was kind of interesting because uh, as we were driving there, I saw all of these elephants that were being carried about, some in the back of trucks, some bigger elephants, and some smaller elephants. And I thought, this is bizarre. I mean, they're paper mache. They weren't real elephants. They were just paper mache or metal or whatever. They had made these elephants. And when I got there, I asked, I asked Dr. Sani, I said, what's going on? Oh, they're worshiping the elephant god. So when I got to the folks to speak to them, and I said, you know, I'm so thankful that there are no elephant gods in here. That I, and in fact, I want you to know, I do not want to serve a god that I have to carry around. I want a God that will carry me around. And I don't want it, if it teeters, that I have to pick it up. I've carried it on my shoulder. But, you know, the fool has said, (laughs) there is no God. But you know something? Equally foolish is the man who says, I'll make a God who will help me. We see other cases in the Old Testament where we sit there and they talk about making these gods and they take a piece of wood... They carve from that wood a statue, a god, and from the wood that is left over, they cook their dinner. Does that seem stupid? Unreasonable? Let me tell you something. Any god we seek to fashion that is other than the true and living god is foolish. I shouldn't say stupid because that's when my grandkids that live back in... um, close to Chicago when they hear my message, their mom and dad always say, that's a granddad word. We don't use that. So, forgive me, kids. So we've asked one question. Can I know that there's a God? Yes, based upon the three things I've said. Plus, when I ask the second question, Why are there false gods? It is because I refuse to acknowledge the one true God, but yet have within my very DNA the need for a God, and so I fashion a God so that I can satisfy that desperate need within me. I think that's what we see in the 11th chapter of Genesis with the Tower of Babel. Let us build a great tower unto God. They weren't really trying to reach all the way up into heaven. They were just trying to build a structure so that people would look at it and marvel at it. Let us, they said, and God had to destroy that in the process. So the need for a God suggests to me that there really could be a God. Before I go on to my fourth question, I need to ask the other question because there are all these other gods out there. My third question is this, 
Is God more powerful than these false gods? Is he threatened by these false gods? No. In fact, we see in Scripture, there's three wonderful illustrations that are given to us. Uh, one of those is found in 1 Kings in chapter 18, and you know the story so well. It's, uh, it's, the, it's, it's the choice that they were making, do I serve God or do I serve Baal? Which one are we going to serve? And so there was a contest, you know this, with Elijah and the false prophets of Baal. They made this contest and they said, well, let's just fashion ourselves this, this sacrifice here. And then we're going to call upon God and the true God will consume this offering. And so they did that. And, they, uh, and the, the, bless the prophet's heart, the, the false god there, they were doing everything. They were cutting themselves. They were, they were begging. Their, and, and Elijah probably had to confess it later, began to make fun of them. He said, well, maybe he's out to lunch. Well, I would agree he is out to lunch, but I mean, but, but maybe this, there's a problem. Maybe he's just too busy right now. But when it came time for Elijah to make his offering, I love his prayer. Remember, he had the ditch around. He poured the water on top, water floating around. And then this was his prayer. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the Lord. He is God. I think God handled that pretty well, don't you? You know, and listen, I want a God that can handle and conquer anything that is before me that appears to be greater or fearful. I don't want a God that's standing on the edge of, the, uh, of eternity trying to figure out what's going on and trying to wonder if there's anybody more powerful. I don't want to be looking over that precipice there and, and then look down there and see God and he says to me, you got any ideas? No, I was hoping you did. And he does. Well, another illustration then is actually uh, found in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5, and it is when the Philistines had taken the Ark of the Covenant. You'll remember the story, and they brought the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was in the temple, and it was a place that represented the Shekinah glory of God. It is the place where God chose to manifest himself. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't a god. It wasn't a statue. It was just a place that represented the presence of God. Well, when they took the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in their temple, temple to Dagon, and uh, their God there, and when they came back the next day, Dagon was on his, had fallen over before the Ark of the Covenant. I don't think anybody pushed that over. I think God tilted. They said, I'm God. This is nothing. And then they, they have, and it's pretty interesting. You can read the scripture there. They had to lift it up. Again, I don't want a God that I have to lift. 
And he had to put it back up and they kind of stationed it there so maybe it wouldn't totter anymore. They came the next day and the head was gone, the hands were gone, falling off, bowed down again. I think they finally said, we have got to get rid of this Ark of the Covenant. And they, everywhere they went, there was judgment that was falling till they could find a place. This was God manifesting that he was greater. One third illustration, is God able to handle those? I think we see it uh, when the Israelites were down in uh, Egypt and God was ready to deliver them. And in delivering them, uh, he did two things. He manifested his greatness through the different plagues that were given. And secondly, he demonstrated the absolute powerlessness of their false gods. Their last god that they had in Egypt was Pharaoh himself and his son. They were considered to be gods. And the firstborn was lost. All those were judgments upon the false gods that were there. God will triumph over every power, over every authority that raises itself in opposition to God. He will triumph over that. I don't want you to be afraid of that. You know, and, and some men act as if they're God and they, they start proclaiming stuff and it, and it sounds awesome and terrible. I retreat to the greatness of my God. And I say, God, when the nations rise against you, as he says in Psalms, what are, you, are, are you worried about that? He laughs. I'm not worried at all. Mike, I've got it. I can handle it. Now, if I can trust him in these areas, then he is a God that is truly trustworthy. So we've answered three questions so far. Can I know there's a God? Yes, in a general sense, I can. Why are there false gods? Because man rebels against God, yet he has the God nature with a desire for a God within him, so he creates false gods. God knew he would do that, Ten Commandments. And is God more powerful than false gods? And the answer to that is yes. Well, how do I know then, fourth question, how do I know then who the one true God is. How do I know that? This is where Pastor Aaron's message becomes so crucial for us uh, because how I know that there is one God is found in the inspired Word of God. This is not something that I created. It's something that is in the Word of God. I think we need to come to understand something. It is not, even though I'm sympathetic to the whole apologetic theme where we can give a defense of our faith, a reason for our hope, I believe sometimes we are fearful that maybe God won't stand up well against some of the philosophical thought of the day or some of the intellects of the day. We fear that, and so we have to say, I got to defend God. May I say to you that you do not have to defend God? I think He's capable of doing that Himself. But what you do have to do is proclaim God. That's, that's what we have to do. We have to declare who he is. And this is all I'm going to do for you. Why do I, why do we believe in one God? Because the Bible says so. Listen, I'll give you a number of references here. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Bible declares there is one God. In Isaiah chapter 45, 5 and 6, I am the Lord. There is no one else. There is no God except me. 
I, I will arm you, though you will not know me, so that people may know what the rising and the setting of the sun, that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no one else. He goes on in that same chapter, declare, declare and present your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this long ago? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, he existed before all. And what is it that he's declaring? This is it. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 44 6 to 8 says, This is what the Lord says, He who is the King of Israel, His Redeemer, and the Lord of armies. I am the first, I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? He asks. In the New Testament we find in 1 Timothy verse two, chapter 2 and verse 5. For there is no God, there is, I'll get it right here, there is one God and one mediator, also God and man, uh, between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Why do we believe that there is one God and that all of these other gods are false? It's because the Bible clearly declares that. I have not exhausted the scriptures, I've given them enough. To believe that. You see how important knowing the reliability of the Word of God, the trustworthiness of God's Word, the fact that it is God-breathed, because from that I draw the conclusion that there is one God. We also understand, as we state in our beliefs, that this is a triune God. The Trinity. People always raise this argument. Well, the, tr- the word Trinity is never found in the Scripture. And I say, you're right. But the concept of the Trinity is clearly defined. Now, the Trinity is not something that we come up with. In fact, we can't even adequately explain the Trinity. You know, we're talking about, uh, some people believe, well, there there are three gods, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No, they're three in one. You say, well, how can that be? Because he's God. I'm not trying to defend him. I'm trying to declare him. This is who he says he is. And we try to come up all types of ways to illustrate him. We try to say, well, it's kind of like uh, uh, water and ice and steam. Now, that's inadequate because they don't all coexist at the same time. If it's steam, it's not ice. If it's ice, it's not water. Now, the components are the same, I agree, but the form is different. So it somewhat illustrates it. But the fact is, there is nothing that you can come up with horizontally that can adequately illustrate what the, who the Trinity is. It all falls short because he's so far above. He's so, it's absolutely unique. Now, you say, well, why do we believe in a Trinity then? If it's so hard to embrace or so hard to explain, why do we believe in the Trinity? It's because the Bible says He is a triune God. 
And what I mean by a triune God, God in essence there, the Father is not the Son, Son's not the Father, Son's not the Spirit, and Son, they're unique personalities existing as one. I've heard it explained like this. The, the um, economical trinity, that is the trinity and the Godhead, how they have brought about salvation. God the Father judges, God the Son t- declares his sacrificial work on the cross, and God the Holy Spirit promotes that and brings conviction. But there is the ontological trinity, which is the trinity of essence. They are one in essence. They are one. Now, how do I, why do I believe that? Because the Bible says that. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, this is at the beginning, then God says, let us, who is he talking to? Let us make mankind in our, that's the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They were consulting together. Even before the foundation of the world, the plan was laid, how, what they were going to do. Where was that consulted? Right within the Godhead. Let us make mankind according to our own image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over and so forth. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 22, then the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out in his hand and take hold of the tree of life. But it's again like one of us. Genesis 11, verse 7, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. This is at the Tower of Babel, so that they will not be, they will not be able to understand one another's speech. But he says this, let us go down there. So there is the plurality that we find here. Isaiah 6, verse 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, Lord, send me. We know that's Isaiah's testimony there. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, And being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the full Trinity in action, in concert together. We see it defined for us here. We also find in the end of Matthew 28 when we have the Great Commission, Verse 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is the triune God, three in one. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there all together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. Jude 20 and 21, but you, beloved, building yourselves up uh, on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, looking forward to the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is God, 
but not the Son, nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is God, but not the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God, but not the Father nor the Son. They are three in one. You say, you know, Mike, that's really hard to understand. And I say to you, you know something, church? That is really hard to understand. Why do I believe that? Why do we believe that? Because the Bible clearly defines that as such. The third aspect of why can I know this true God, or is there one true God, is because of his infinity. Now, I consulted on this because the only one that I know that has gone beyond the infinity of God is Buzz Lightyear. He's my favorite theologian. Because his saying is, if you just knew the Bible as well as you knew Toy Story, you know. And he says that. He gets up. Now, what is he doing? He's trying to get the power and everything that he needs. It's kind of a, it's a good uh, lesson on bad theology. It's, it, he's trying to get all the power he can add so that he now in and of himself can go to, inf- you see, I got my arms like this because I'm spreading my arms out like this. Infinity and beyond. That's the very same thing that Satan was telling I'm not trying to run them story great day. But the writers of that unwittingly are really saying that if you just get enough power, you can go beyond God. Do you know that? I don't believe that. But what does infinity mean then? Infinity means that there is a God without limits. He is infinite. He is endless. He is vast. He's immeasurable. He's universally omnipresent. And we say, well, why do I believe in the infinity of God? Because the Bible says that. In Revelation 1.4, it says, Grace and peace be to you from him, from him who is, who was, and who is to come. I am and I will be, but I never was always. I don't know if that bugs you about God. That he's always been. Do you ever ask the question, what was before God. I don't know anything apart from God that does not have a beginning and an end. My life has a beginning and has an end. Dinner has a beginning and has an end. A football game has a beginning and an end. God has always been. That drives me as crazy as if somebody says, if you had all the feathers you could carry, could you carry one more? I'm thinking, probably it's, that's, that's refuting. I mean, that's impossible. If I had all I could carry, that's all I could carry. God, you've always been. He also says that in, in uh, the, verse 8 of Revelation chapter 1. He is the alpha, the beginning, and the omega, the end, the first and the last, speaking of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. He has always been, he always will be, and he'll always be exactly who he is in that process. I believe one of the verses that I can also find out about the infinity of God is John 17 and verse 3. John 17 verse 3 is talking about what is eternal life. What does it mean to have eternal life? And it says, this is eternal life, that you would know the Father and the Son. 
So what eternal life is, and I love this because I've often tried to say, what does the future of infinity, infinite time, no limitation have on my eternal existence? i tell you exactly what I think we're going to be doing in heaven. I think, and, and by the way, it's the same thing we're going to be doing right here if we're disciplined. It's the same thing that I've committed to do this next year, and that is every day I want to learn something new about God because that is eternal life. Eternal life doesn't mean that I, it does mean this, but it's not all that it means that I have a fire insurance policy and I'm not going to hell. Eternal life just doesn't mean that I'm going to live forever. Yes, it does. Eternal life has substance to it. It has purpose to it. And that purpose is, is that I might get to know God. And I plan throughout all of eternity because my God is infinite and I won't live long enough to exhaust him here. And I won't live long enough in eternity to exhaust him here. And I believe that all of my life will be an aha experience with God. Oh, uh-huh. This is who you are, God. This, uh, and, and we'll be worshiping God. And some of you will be in higher classes than I'll be in. And you'll learn something about God. And when I bump into you, did you know this about God? No, tell me about it. Oh, this is incredible. I believe that's what heaven is going to be like in terms of that, knowing him in that very rich way. All right. How do I know there's a God? The B-I-B-L-E, <laughs> the Bible, tells me there is one triune, uh, uh, infinite, eternal God. That brings me to the fifth question. Can I know this one true God? That's what Christmas messages have been about, haven't they? Turn with me to John chapter 1. And again, how do I have a relationship with God? I find it in the Bible. The gospel, as John records it, chapter 1. We see something about, and the word here is referring to God. We see it stated, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Speaks of the triune God there as well. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that that has not come from him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It talks about the witness of John the Baptist. And he talks about that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil in John 3. But then down verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of the blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, and the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, all of the world systems that are out there that have made their false gods, understand that God is opposed to them because of their sin. And they all believe that they have to do something to appease God. It is true this, that God is angry with the sin of mankind. And something must be done about it. 
But the arrogance of mankind to believe that he can do something that would be pleasing to God for his own soul. By the way, a works salvation is built on that premise. If I can do enough works, if I can measure, if I can finally do that, then, then I'll be saved. I will have paid the price and I will be... No, Jesus paid the price. And by the way, you should be very thankful that salvation is not by a works system. Because if it's by a work system, and if there's a just God, only one person can be saved. Think about it. It's the one that's done the most works. It would be unjust of God to give you what I got, and it took me one more thing to do to get it. But because it's by the grace of God and what He did, it is available to all of us to receive so that we can have an intimate relationship with Him. Can I know... My fifth question, can I know this one true God? Oh, yes, I can. And I should get to know him better and better every day. I should have a spirit of humility about me. And I should learn from Job, who did know something about God. But in the 38th chapter on through the end of Job, he was rebuked because he said, Okay, Job, you do know something about me. But were you there when, were you Jew? And all I find from Job then is confession and repentance. Oh, 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 I'm sorry, Lord, I'm sorry, I didn't know any of that. Which really means then that there is never a point in which we finally arrive to where we have the full knowledge of God. There is always something more to learn. doesn't mean what you've learned right now is, in, is inadequate, it's just a piece of it. It's kind of like the six blind men that had heard about elephants, but had never been able to be around an elephant. And finally the elephant is brought to them, and the six blind men examine the elephant the one bumped into the elephant and said, oh, an elephant's like a great wall. It's obvious to see. It's obvious he can't see. It's obvious that it's like a great wall. Well, another one had struck upon the tusk. And he says, oh, no, it's smooth and sharp like a spear. And one of the taller ones had taken hold of the ear and was flopping. Oh, no, no, no. An elephant is like a great fan. That's what it's like. And another one had grabbed the leg and said, no, it's like a trunk of a tree. And the other one had grabbed the tail and he says, no, it's like a great rope. Even though none of them had fully comprehended the elephant, it did not mean that what they had grabbed hold of wasn't true. And it did not mean that there was not a complete elephant there. They just had more to learn. I know God exists. And I know he's there to be discovered and learned. And I want to do. Right now, I may have this limited view. And I may think he's like a wall. (laughs) But I'm going to keep learning. And I'm going to keep learning. Sixth question. What are the benefits of knowing this one true God? Well, it's an eternal difference. That's what it is. It's eternal security. That I'm secure for him with ever and ever. It is the peace that passes understanding. It is joy that is full and overflowing. It is love that uh, conquers all. It is an overflowing power that allows me to stand in those times that are most difficult. It's access to the God of wisdom, the Alpha and the Omega. It gives me purpose. It gives me assurance that my sins have been forgiven. It makes me a member of the family of God. I know that I belong. I have hope. And I could go on. Knowing God makes all the difference in the world and in eternity. 
My seventh question is, do you know this one true God? I'm asking that from two perspectives. It could be that you've never had this personal experience that I spoke at, spoke of in that, can I know this one true God? Do I, have I ever believed in Him? Have I ever trusted Him? Have I ever accepted the work that He's done for, for me? Do I know that I'm saved? Do I know that He's my Lord and my Savior? Do I know that? But the second aspect of that question is, you've been walking with the Lord for a while, and you could say emphatically, I know Jesus is my Savior. But you know, if I was called to tr on trial to prove who my God is, I'd find myself sorely falling short of evidence. Then I'm asking you, do you, do you know this God? Do, will you purpose with me this year to daily, to weekly, to monthly, knowing this God better. He's there. He's there. He exists. He manifests Himself to us. He's provided for us to have a personal relationship with us. And He loves to be discovered. And He loves for you to worship Him. I just ask you, do you know Him? Do you know my God?